Hello and welcome to the Missing Episodes podcast. I'm Tim, we're back in the Missing Episodes bunker in the Levant, and I'm joined by Paul. Yes, hello. I'm back also. So, episode three, Paul, this is our Goldfinger. <laughs> Stop getting Bond right. <laughs> anyway, I don't know about pussy galore, but we certainly have <laughs> a lot of lion later on. <laughs> <laughs> when we're joined by Paul Schoons, who is one of the New Zealand fans who helped to bring it back. Yes, a real-life hero. I can't wait. Anyway, Paul, did you bring along the uh, the goods? The goods? Oh, yes, 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 of course. <clears throat> yeah, I should just explain. Tim decided it would be good to have some uh, The Crusade-themed goodies to enjoy while we're recording this week. Uh, yeah, no, the, the merchant down at the bazaar was very nice. So, you know, I stole a load of his stuff while he wasn't looking. Yeah, that's what the doctor would have done. And what have you got then? What have you got? Ah, I have a couple of lion bars, one each. Oh, well, excellent, excellent. Episode one being the lion, and and now we have themed confection. Mm. What else did you manage to get? Uh, got some uh, Jaffa cakes. Ah, brilliant. Jaffa oranges, also known as Shamuti oranges, came from around the city in which this story is set. Well done, Paul. What else? Yeah, I struggled a bit with this one, I'm afraid, so I just uh, got us another snack. Wagon wheels. Oh, oh, well, I suppose the word wheel as a vaguely linking thing. Yes, that that was my thinking. Wagon wheels of fortune. Well, let's say, you could have provided a poster of Nicky Campbell and Jenny Powell from that TV show yeah. to brighten the place up, of course, with or without the Nicky Campbell. Anyway, what's last? Well, uh, l- no confection this time, I'm afraid, but I did get... Look at these. Two rare Dapol figures of the Warlord. Hmm. The Warlord? Yeah. The Warlord from the War Games, yeah? Philip Maddock? <laughs> Go and pull the string on the back. Oh, blimey, Paul. That's thin. Okay. Better pull the string! Excellent. Well, now we can begin. The Crusade, Paul. Hmm. Serial P? Is it Serial P? I believe that to be the case. It's the third story affected by missing episodes, in that two and four are sadly absent Hmm. from the archive. And until relatively recently, I say relatively recently, but 20 years ago, we only had episode three, which was available on the William Hartnell years. So we'll do the normal order. We'll talk about a bit of background to the show, our thoughts on the characterization. We'll do a bit of a review of the of our thoughts on the story, and then we'll wheel out Mr. Schoons. How does that sound? Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't leave him locked in that cupboard for too long. The Crusade. It's the fifth historical, and it's the first and only one written by David Whittaker. It is. So you might wonder if that gives us a chance to see uh, his vision for the programme in its pure, untainted form. Except, of course, he's working for Dennis Spooner's script editor, just as <laughs> yes. Spooner once, uh, <laughs> well, I say untainted, with no loaded meaning whatsoever. But the, the roles are reversed, haven't they? He, he mm. was editing Spooner's Reign of Terror, so we might wonder whether that was the, you know, the pure Spooner. And I think we argued last time that it wasn't. What about here? What do you think? Do you think this is David Whittaker's... Well, there is certainly 
the instance of the spoonerism in here and that it's it's the spooner's device of getting the doctor from a to b and that he'll have various incidents along the way and have chance to show his one-upmanship over some poor dim-witted so-and-so and we get that in episode one but that's the only real spooner i detect yeah, it, yeah. and it's interesting that it's uh, as whitaker's third script the first one being inside the spaceship what's his second one the rescue ah thank you so it's whitaker's third script yeah uh, the first one is completely off the wall and written against the clock yeah the rescue is a purely another space filler if you like to introduce a companion so this is Whitaker's first attempt to show his writing chops there was a point when I was thinking about this in preparation where I did wonder if perhaps this was the only story where we kind of see Whitaker just writing something for the fun of it without any Mm. you know shopping list of of, uh, requirements or you know yeah it's a bit because the power of the Daleks is not the pure Whitaker even the Daleks is is also trying to fulfil certain functions. Hmm. Maybe Enemy and Wheel in Space. But yeah. I, I like to think this is Whitaker just showing us what Doctor Who is to him because I think it's it's his best. He's writing for pleasure, isn't he? He's right and it's a pet subject of his and we see that throughout in that he really writes enjoyable dialogue and we'll talk about the dialogue later but yeah it's him writing you, for fun you don't get that sense of strain that you sometimes get when he's writing science fiction like it's a uh, second language for him here <laughs> no. like most of the writers and um, probably half the viewers in those days he's, he knows his subject hmm. do we know the subject paul aha <laughs> did you do a twitter poll for this one i didn't ah i assumed that because it, i covered it at school briefly that most people would be more familiar with this stuff but i don't know did you do it at school oh dear i think only only very generally i mean i certainly wouldn't be able able to tell Mm. the difference between the first and second third and fourth crusades no Um, my abiding memory of this is that richard uh, the lionheart's crusade fell to pieces because none of the none of the the european leaders could get on or agree what to do so they all packed up and went home yeah, and and then Richard the first soon after attended the wedding of Robin Hood and Maid Marian in Sherwood Forest. <laughs> well, <laughs> with a Scottish accent. <laughs> that's the that's the limit of my knowledge. My takeaway of memory of doing it at school was it was always taught with a slightly imperialist bent, and there was a slight air of well. Um, we were the goodies and the Muslims were the bad guys, which made an interesting contrast. It wasn't told overtly like that, but it was it was told in this with this sense yeah. of imperialism. I think, I think by your day that would have been less overt than it probably was. Yeah, but there, there wasn't any ground given to the other side, no. as it were, which made it remarkable watching the crusade, mm. how incredibly balanced... It was. I think that would have seemed quite surprising to most of the viewers at the time. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, not uh, surprising, but not hopefully disturbing to the more intelligent viewers, but there would have probably been a lot of them who had soaked up the traditional mm. narrative and, yeah. would have, and would have been expecting from an entertainment program like Doctor Who an even more simplistic goodies versus baddies but de- depiction than they got at school. And uh, yeah... It's, uh, which is what you probably would have got in one of those ITV um, adventure programs that we were talking about last time. That yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
I mean, interesting in that Richard, in in many many ways, is one of the worst villains in the piece, and Saladin comes out of it squeaky clean, as it were. Yeah, if you just look at the um, never mind their actions, if you look at the way they're depicted as people, Saladin mm. is very calm, thoughtful, yeah. sincere. Richard is angry, volatile, emotional. Yeah, interesting. But of course, this is Doctor Who, and there are heroes and villains. But uh, mm. yeah, it's not anywhere near as simple as previously depicted in other historicals. Uh, although there are shades of grey in the Reign of Terror, there are the historical storytelling in the Crusade isn't very clear either. In that the politics between the players are meticulously spelled out in the play. Oh, that was a Freudian slip calling it a play because it's very much a play, isn't it? But then the history is left oddly murky at the end. It is. <laughs> the Doctor says something like, even now history must take its course and doesn't explain what happens. No, but there's a reason for that, which I'd, I'd like to come on to later. Comparing it to the other historicals then, I, I, for me, I think we've, we've seen a couple of different types. Uh, I think Marco Polo and Aztecs are both very serious pieces. Hmm. Rain, the Terran, and the Romans are, in their own ways, less serious. Here, I think what is notable about the, about the Crusade is the last time anyone tries to do a fully straight, serious-minded story mm. about real events and real historical figures. It is, yeah. What's interesting about that is that, um, is that Whitaker apparently was telling his writers that that was a bad idea, whether... That was something he had learned from working on those early historicals, that you just enter a world of difficulty when you when you try to have the, our heroes crossing paths with, with real figures because it, mm. it it limits where you can go in the story. It limits how much surprise there can be, but it also limits the, the tone. It, it tends to become oddly didactic, like there's very peculiar mm. scenes in The Reign of Terror. Well, it's not entirely clear to me that Dennis Spinner really wanted those uh, the real personages in his story, Napoleon, Robespierre, and so on, they're kept in the background, off screen. They're just referred to when they, they're needed to keep the plot moving. But he's, yeah. just, he's decided that it's much easier and more suitable to the tone of the programme to use his own invented heroes and villains. I don't suppose this would have been very likeable for 1965 kid at the time. You know, it hasn't got Daleks in it and monsters, and it's very wordy. No. It's got some very adult themes. I know uh, when the Hartnell years came out, I wasn't particularly fond of the Wheel of Fortune, to be honest. I found it a bit dry as a kid. Well, I would have been a teenager then, but, you know, I don't think it would have been what Doctor Who was soon to become about. Well, the historicals have to reinvent themselves, and what they become is the smugglers, the Highlanders, really. And they could have carried on in that vein for a lot longer, but um, it's not enough to save them. And, of course, what it actually becomes is bases under siege. Yeah, eventually. But we're in that that period where it's formative and everything is new and everything is an experiment. I mean, you can't get much more different from the web planet (laughs) to this straight-laced sort of drama. You can't. And then the Space Museum, which is wacky, and they never try that again. And then the complete Kids Fest, which is the chase. It's doing a lot of stuff in this season. And interestingly, I suppose, in season three, they try to go more adult. They sort of side on the crusade in a way, in in that they try to stick with the, the grittier stuff, and that goes down like a broken glass sandwich. And then we end up with the base under siege monster stuff being the the staple. 
Douglas Canfield's first go at directing a, an entire story. And it did have that sense watching The Lion of someone who knows what they're doing or, and has a vision for how a fight should work. <laughs> it was a bit scratchy, but... He, he learned yeah, under interesting. Morris Hussain, didn't he? Well, I believe did I've he? read that in passing. <laughs> he was right. Morris Hussain's right-hand man. And um, there's a lot of similarities, I would say, in their ability to get the most out of that limited multi-camera setup, keeping yeah. nice and close. It yeah. certainly reaches new heights in the, um, the dialogue-heavy scenes. But I think episode three is probably, yeah. it's almost like episode three of Enemy of the World in this respect. It might not seem very interesting out of context, but in, in context in the story, it's, I think it's the peak, the peak of the dialogue and the actors and the, and the direct direction rise to the challenge. Yeah, and the peak of the story and that the threat is the greatest, mm. isn't it, to Barbara? There's some pretty harrowing stuff in there. When did you last read the Target book? <laughs> it would have been one of the first I read. Not not in 1965 and not not in 1973 either but it was it was one of the first and um and then again the uh, last week it's, it's, oh did you <laughs> it's not it's rather good isn't it it is rather good i i haven't read it for a few years but um i particularly love the the early three the two david whitaker ones the daleks and the uh, exciting adventure with the daleks and then Bill Strutton making the web planet make sense, and then we have the crusade. It is rather good. My memory of it is that it has a slightly different ending. In the in the TV show, Whitaker had the king excuse the Doctor and Vicky, and sending them off with his blessings, and then they are pursued by Lester. In the novelization, the Doctor isn't forgiven for breaking breaking the confidence or whatever the issue was. Uh, and so the book has a, a bigger sense of danger at the end and more of a scrambled ending and them trying to just yeah. get away from things. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it, how a writer can identify things they'd like to improve upon so quickly after after yeah. writing the original. I mean, it's, it's mm. full of change all the way through. I mean, it, loads of little things, like um, at the beginning, Vicky doesn't accompany the Doctor when they go on their shoplifting spree, which is possibly a, a oh, sign right. that um, she was only there because of the requirements of television so it gives the doctor somebody to talk to and in the book he doesn't need to be so she's not there and it's mm. just little things like that on the way through i did i enjoyed the yeah, prologue as well where he brings up to speed with how he sees ian and barbara who are of course these slightly alternative ian and barbara from barnes common aren't they but um <laughs> ian with his body of a greek god and barbara with her deep tan he said, oh, yeah, right. he gets into great physical detail about how they've shaped up and toned up during their adventures with, with the Doctor. Is it the Crusade or is it the, the web planet with updates on what's happened to Susan? And say he, she's gone off to marry <laughs> No, that's David here Cameron. as well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Talking of all those amazing changes he's able to make free from the shackles of the TV programme, he changes David Campbell to David Cameron. Yeah, I'd, I'd do the opposite if, it was, if I didn't do with it. But. Oh, and he does, in my opinion, he gets as close as he can to saying that Ian and Barbara are, um, are at it. We've moved on to characterisation, yep, yep. Paul. Let's run through those then. So the Doctor, well, I've already said there is the, the instance in episode one, very similar to the Reign of Terror, where he has a confrontation with someone who he wants to get one over, and that comes back to haunt him. Very similar to... Well, it's another, it's another clothes situation, isn't, that, isn't it? it? Very yeah. similar to Reign. We had, we had sales from mm. first appear in Marco Polo, so it's becoming a running thread of these historicals. They're starting to repeat themselves a little bit. I'm going to mm. quote as I often do, 
my old friend Tatwood from About Time, he he, had, he refers to this second uh, series version of the Doctor as a twinkling Doctor, which I rather like. Because we are midway between... I always hmm. think of the <laughs> Hartnell's strange left turn into giggling like a madman is something that's peculiarly third series, but it isn't really, is it? It's, it's actually starts here. And I think he actually gets a bit carried away with it in the second series. And he's, and I may have maligned the third the series three doctor. I think he's got it under control by them, but he, he's, when he's not giggling, he's definitely twinkling. It's in his eyes all the time. Any chance he gets, he's looking mischievous. Well, not not mischievous, but I was roaring with uh, with laughter at it about a minute in, when the TARDIS dematerializes and they're straight out into the woods, and Barbara gets swiped away, and Ian takes down one of the uh, Saracen soldiers, and the Doctor throws Ian off him, if only so he can <laughs> beat him up himself. We've never seen that. <laughs> We've seen that in yeah. episode one. Well, uh, but it's it's. It's lovely. In, in the book, he goes for a rock to repeat his caveman trick. But, yeah. For... Oh, does he? <laughs> oh, dear. He's morally ambiguous here, isn't he? Quite quite a bit. He, he's quite happy to steal. <laughs> he's quite happy to betray Joanna. In that, you know, she wants him as an ally, but he very quickly realizes himself with the king. I found him to be quite duplicitous and morally ambiguous in this one which was interesting Do you think it's any way, in any way that's a return to the the early Could be. Ca- days characterization but not not a sign that Whitaker thinks that's that's slipped necessarily well Whitaker likes to hark back to the very first ideas doesn't he i mean he's he's bringing back the fluid links yeah and, and static electricity at the drop of a drop of a balloon yeah indeed yeah, yeah. So interesting. Uh, what about Ian? Well, I mean, this is like um, Uber Ian, isn't it? This is it's the platonic <laughs> ideal of an Ian. He he's not just an epic swordsman. Goodness knows where he's supposed to pick this up, but he now gets knighted for it. Yeah. He now becomes the yeah, literally the knight in shining armor, isn't he? But I find it interesting that he doesn't do a lot, really, in that he's he's pivotal to being the knight character, but. He doesn't get. He to doesn't, do a lot. and I. He's on holiday again. Again, I'm. I'm looking forward again to um, the fact that the story gets a bit tangled towards the end. But it's not even entirely down to the way he's hidebound by the narrative. He he has opportunities. There are spaces in the in mm. the plot for him to to achieve rather more than he does. But he, but he ends up just tied down um, for an episode and covered with honey, on his gorgeous bronze chest. Do you think that's just because <laughs> he had another week off? No, that wasn't his week off. No, I, I'm just. Am I just thinking that because he's on film when he's tied down? Yeah, in... he's on film, but he has episode three the week off, right? And then in episode four, he spends half the episode literally tied down, and then he just he he doesn't save the day at the end. He just literally uh, because Haroon yes. kills Elakir, he just literally escorts that Barbara in back. a less skilled, experienced writer. You would think was the cardinal sin of falling in love with your own characters so giving Haroon the mm. win because I mean yes it does make sense Haroon's been set up to deserve yeah. that win so he gets it but Whitaker chose to set him up Whitaker chose to introduce this character and make us care about him and it is a bit clumsy that Ian just turns up slightly mm. too late I just found it maybe a telltale sign that by the time when, when we did the Reign of Terror they couldn't manage without him 
to the point where even when he was on holiday for two weeks, he still did more than Susan. But in this, we start to see that they don't really have much use for him in this story, and they can manage without him and give him another couple of months and he'll be off and they lose a character. I'm not saying they, they lose Ian, because they obviously don't. They replace with, with Stephen. But they lose a character and Ian isn't the central heroic figure that they require anymore. It's not so much that they're thinking Hartnell can do, can do the action, but what they are, might be thinking is the Doctor is now firmly mm. p- placed as the hero. He still has shades of grey here, Ab- but that's, that's why Ian is absolutely. becoming less... Yeah vital isn't yeah. he but in contrast to ian's lack of stuff to do we've got barbara oh uh, yes it's her tour de force isn't it really yeah on on paper you might think it's is not a very strong outing for her because she's being lusted after as usual she's locked up almost to damsel in distress on paper but in practice because this is barbara she this is not the case she's constantly trying to escape she's using her wits to survive and understand her enemy I think Jacqueline Hill is absolutely fantastic in this, in, in that episode three, which I, I didn't appreciate before, but but have done you know more recently. I think it is a tour de force. There are some very adult themes in this, aren't there? Mm. Implied rape, torture, being told to kill Harun's other daughter in case of capture. I don't I don't suppose this was standard fare for kids TV in the 60s I don't know but it, it just positively shocking some of it that's a Sean Connery line but not <laughs> intended as such <laughs> um, it is absolutely uh, harrowing stuff that we have to deal with and Ella Keir is one of the nastiest pieces of work that we see in the entire show in that his threats are very real and, and you know he's not pl- threatening to blow up a planet or rule the universe he's threatening to rape and torture and enslave and kill so yeah very surprised yet again about how adult these Mm. themes are in which case it's not surprising that Whitaker apparently thought he could get away with some the implied relationship between Richard and Joanna (laughs) which um, apparently the actors are very much looking forward to portraying I don't know quite what this says about them yes (laughs) but they were they were giving it more source apparently weren't they and and did uh, Verity Lambert interrupt them and say, don't think I don't know what you're up to or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vicky. Our first encounter with Vicky. You know what? I found her a breath of fresh air after the Most Susan. people say that, don't they? Yeah. Mm. I think for me, most of her strengths are, unfortunately, just as a reaction to Susan. I don't, I don't ever sure. find her anything particularly sparkling in herself. She is charming. She's got a great sense of fun which Susan certainly didn't. And it's the first character in the, in the show, the first regular character, and one of the few, actually, who has this overwhelming sense of fun, especially mm. in this. She's, she's just laughing all the time during the scenes with, in the courts. Uh, and I, I found that very refreshing. You're right, it might be a knee-jerk reaction to Susan being ill. Saladin. Yes. And Safadin. We've touched on, um, we've touched on the more sympathetic portrayal of them. They are historical figures. He does them justice. They are presented as the history books would have us believe. But, I mean, as you said, it's a sympathetic portrayal, not of these as pe- just as these as people, but of Islam, which is not mm. what we would have expected. It's an interesting... Yeah, mm. We don't want to get too bogged down in that side of it, but, I mean, David Whittaker was probably a Christian. I imagine most of these writers were back then. 
and mm. it would have been in a less intelligent treatment it, it would have been very easy to push the angle that these people yeah. were, <laughs> were bad just by virtue of their religion they were born you know they were yeah. born bad they made a, a fundamentally unethical choice to m move away from god but he does not thankfully take that position we have a marvelously still performance from bernard k back again just a f just a few weeks after it would be an unpopular opinion um but i think it's his best performance i think it's lovely and he's he's hardly in it he's such a heavy character he's hardly in it at all there's only a few yeah. scenes with him in 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 the first three episodes he doesn't appear in the fourth but i think it's his best performance it's very very measured respectful it has a poise about it i think is 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 really powerful yeah very impressed i like bernard k anyway but I, out of his four, I think it's four, it's, it's his best. All of these actors are taking it very seriously. I mean, they they, are. they have yeah. a choice when they come into Doctor Who, no matter what script they're given, whether to ham it up because it's children's TV or take it seriously. But here, it appears that it was never a question. They all thought this was a, a superb script. There's famously, due to uh, the lack of uh, animation as yet, lots and lots of minor characters yeah. in this similar to reign of terror in that regard in that they there's a lot of characters in that as well but not in the not in the two episodes that they had to animate but somehow the characters seem more engaging than previously yes i'd have said i mean well we, we've got to talk about the the villain i mean for all the subtlety of, of our antagonist saladin and safadin they they have to have a villain and they create well is, is it telling that he creates a new uh, an original character el akir to be the villain Mm. rather than a historical Muslim. Well, it's interesting that they make the villain of the piece also the enemy of Saladin. It is. He's, a, he's an enemy to everyone, which, which amplifies what he's doing with the, the balance of the good and evil in both Richard and Saladin, if you know what I mean. It really draws you to that, because the villain of the piece is a villain to everyone. It is. And basically, that's what makes this story so interesting. And, you know... As much as I love it, it's not flawlessly constructed. Mm. If it has a, if it has problems, I think it all stems from trying to have its cake and eat it. It is straddling that divide between needs of Doctor Who as an action adventure serial, so it requires Barbara mm. to be kidnapped and and held hostage and people to fight to rescue yeah. her. It needs that, so it needs yeah. a villain like Ella Keir. But the background is the most colourful, richly painted tapestry we've ever seen, compressed even more so than Marco sure. Polo. We've got the courts sure. of Saladin and of Richard, both painted very mm. vividly. And But yeah. they are, that is just a backdrop. So we, we've got yes. an incredibly well-explored, theatrically written and performed background. And in the foreground, we've just got a bad man with a twirling moustache who's been invented for that purpose. Yeah. So it's an interesting dual-level story. Yeah. You get to know the... Uh, I can't remember his name, but the, is he a Genoan merchant who comes in, Elakir's ally who kidnaps Barbara for him? He's pretty well depicted, even though I didn't really enjoy him as a character. And we also have the slightly sometimes comic presence the of... Chamberlain? Um, yeah. The Chamberlain. Well, yeah. <laughs> Who had one of the greatest funnies in Doctor Who ever. A boy dressed as a girl is nothing understandable these days. I thought that was so yep. funny. It's as good a comedic line as there is in the show. 
it's a nice thing to say to your to your juvenile audience that um, these people are just like you. People have been saying, "What is the world coming to? What are the youth of today like?" for <laughs> yes. centuries, yeah. thousands of years. So it's nice yeah, to try indeed. and give people it's, a bit of perspective. And we we should mention Haroon and family, hmm. the two daughters. I think they're I think they're compelling characters, all of them. I think that's a compelling third storyline that goes throughout this and it's a it was a pleasure to watch really even though it was a very sad story but yeah interesting the story itself paul i think i know uh, what your answer is going to be here did you enjoy it oh very much probably i find the easiest story to watch that involves any kind of recon i barely feel yes, like episodes okay. two and four are missing at all which is not to say i wouldn't like it if they turned up under and to Julian Glover's bed, but... Um... I really enjoy it. I, I do really like it. I think episode four is a bit of a... a bit of a... a missed opportunity. I think I think it's a bit of a scramble at the end. Deliberately so, but uh, uh, you don't see Richard. You don't see Saladin. That story isn't resolved. The Doctor doesn't make it clear what what history occurred there. And it's not a particularly crisp bit of history anyway. So, But it is a wonderful... It is. I think... It is a wonderful I think it gets away with that slight looseness of structure because it's so tight, because it's only four episodes long. I mean, Mm. if we'd been rattling along for six or seven episodes and then it all fell apart at the end, in Mm. inverted commas, then that would be disastrous. But it's moving so quickly that you almost don't notice. And you are so engaged with the... Are we calling it the A plot? Is the the main plot, really? Barbara's been kidnapped. Can we get it back again? It's, dis- it's so difficult to disentangle sure. because we're being dazzled by what's going on with these these star names. Mm. Saladin early on, except as you said, he disappears as soon as the- it's quite a ruthless story mm. as well. Once the- it has no further use for the characters, Whitaker doesn't feel any need to keep yeah, them around gone. just yeah. just because that's what would be expected. They're off. Uh, the the story itself is for me is quite an island of sanity in amongst a load of stuff which I don't get on with so much. So the web planet yeah. just before, the space museum and the chase. Mm. I don't really rate any of those. I mean, I, I appreciate they all have their virtues, but it is a real island of good TV in the middle of a load of 60s experimental <laughs> sci-fi. And it's certainly one of the two highlights of, of season two for me, the, the other one being... The Time Meddler, of course. I don't really care for Dalek Invasion of Earth, to be honest. Although, we'll probably lose listeners now I've said that. Yeah, you've lost me, I'm off. <laughs> yes, famously, one of the um, tenets we were handed down in, the early, in our youth from the fans up on Mount Sinai was that this script is not just one of the best scripts ever in Doctor Who, that it was Shakespeare, and it was the best play Shakespeare never wrote. I think Mr. <laughs> Jeremy Bentham used to say, was Ian Levine, one of them, one of them sort of fellas. JVR, <laughs> one of them. What do you think? Do you think the dialogue is Shakespearean? They find interesting ways of delivering something in a period. It fashion. comes and goes. I think it uh, peaks in um, mm. in episode three, and it's it's mostly when the Doctor and his companions aren't involved because you can't really have them suddenly talking an ambic pentameter. So the more elevated the drama becomes, so it is mostly the the scenes of Richard and Joanna and um, and Lester. And there is, yeah, it, there are some very, very, very nice speeches and, and couplets. Mm. And it does get there. It's pastiche stuff, but it's um, there is some really good stuff in there. I'm going to come to the, what I've been building up to. The fact that you've already alluded to the fact that the Doctor 
can't really provide us the resolution we want. I mean, in the whole of the second half of the story, he's just an observer. The Doctor now can't add anything to the plot because there's nothing he can do to change mm. events or influence them in any way. That's the plot he's mm. involved in. Ian can rush off and ineffectually try to rescue Barbara, but the Doctor, stuck at court, mm. just has to stand and watch and make sure that history follows its allotted path. And because we don't have fixed points in time, he can't tell us why he has to do this. No, no, this is not a criticism, but I mean, you know, in episode three, watch it. The Doctor is almost standing watching the story the same way we are. He's watching. It's like he's gone yeah. to in, uh, in the round of production of a Shakespeare's Richard the <laughs> Richard the First. You don't need the Doctor to be embroiled in the story to have to have it be a successful Doctor Who. No, and when you've got five hundred episodes a year like they had in this era, and you can afford to every story, you don't like this tone. You can have a, something completely different. You can have if you don't like the web planet, you can have the crusade and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, it's not a problem at all. Yeah, because these are still the years, and the Doctor doesn't even need to be there. So we can. Have, why can't we have stories where he's there, but might as well not be? Anyway, what a what a great what a great series. Absolutely. So now we're joined by Paul Schoons, who is the former president of the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club for twenty years, former editor of the Time Space Visualizer fanzine, author of the comic strip companions one and two. He also appeared on the Strip for Action DVD Extra. <laughs> He's author of various DVD production subtitles and Blu-ray. He's done Blu-ray production subtitles for Earthshock, co-authored on Trial of the Time Lord and Battlefield. He's author <laughs> of the hardest fan novelizations on the planet to get hold of, Resurrection of the Daleks and Sharda. Uh, he appeared on the Lost in Time DVD. And he also has helped to find an episode of Doctor Who. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I'm good. I do apologise for that very long list there. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about the lion? Oh, is that what we came here for? <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask before we talk about it, Paul? I don't want you to review it by any means, but what were your preconceptions about the Crusade? Or what's your opinion of the Crusade as a, as a serial? Just, just very briefly. I think my um, impressions of it are very much coloured by it being one of the first Target books I would have read, I think. Yeah. So I'm uh, with my mental image of, of the Crusade to this day is very much the detail that David Whittaker put into the book, which, as we know from comparison mm. now, is very much more action-based and there's a lot more happening, particularly mm. in the later episodes, than we actually got on screen. So, yeah, it's hard yeah. to separate the two mentally. And as a fan growing up, forgive me, but when I was a younger fan, I tended <laughs> to be very dismissive of, of the black and white stuff. If what I had yeah. seen of it was very little and what I had seen was multi-generation tape, so it's quite hard to watch. A lot of snowstorm, you know, the <laughs> flickering, yeah. flickering yeah. picture that never quite settled down back in the VHS days. So, you know, obviously I've long since sort of learned the wisdom, you know, the era of my ways, if you know, I'm become a reformed fan of the, the 60s stuff, so don't get me wrong on that. But there would have been a time when the historical stories in particular, I would not have paid any attention mm. to whatsoever. So mm. uh, Crusade really didn't figure on my radar very much up until the time when, when we found it. Because I wasn't someone who looked for missing episodes. You know what I mean? I didn't... I didn't yeah. have any expectation we'd ever yeah. find anything in New Zealand, so I, I wasn't actively looking at any point. And yeah. so I never was sort of 
running through my head oh what have we found this what have we found that just that just wasn't part of my mindset so yeah i didn't i didn't really have much impression of the crusade it was just another entry in the program guide so yeah we're on to the the third missing story this um along with marco polo reina terra this the negatives weren't kept which they had been for most of seasons one and two opinions still differ on why those three stories missed out Mm, yeah. there, there used to be all sorts of discussion of the, uh, the fact that perhaps because they were historicals they weren't as desired or as in, much of interest in certain mm. territories so they did, weren't sold as wi- widely yeah or rejected yeah well, indeed yes the number of countries this uh, the crusade was sold to has dropped yet again it dropped from Marco Polo to Reign of Terror now we've, we're almost at half the number of uh, countries mm. buying this as we had with Marco Polo and as you say not all of them showed it including New Zealand hmm Paul, you know, you you are the only person who's seen evidence that this story was rated. Was it why? Yeah, we've tracked down the um, original New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation, as it was at the time, the records that they had, the program logs, if you like, which was a handwritten ledger, multi-volume thing of every television program that came in as a, a film print into their archives. It has the record of it when it arrived in the archives when it was uh, scheduled for broadcast because New Zealand was split into four television stations regionally at the time. So you got each of the four broadcast dates for each each uh, story, each episode rather. And then you've got, quite crucially, you've got the record of when it was sent away again or what, what happened to the episode and also what it was rated. So the New Zealand rating system at the time, obviously every every uh, episode had to be checked by the censor and approved or disapproved. G was the general rating, obviously, which meant it could be screened any time of the day. And Y was more of a sort of a young adult rating, which was, I think, from memory, had to I be see. 7.30 or later in the evening, which obviously they wanted <laughs> Doctor Who as a family program to be screened on a G slot, ideally. And on the, on these ledgers that I just talked about, the line is actually logged as G along with the rest of the story but on the actual film can itself it was Y which meant it would have probably been rejected because it wasn't suitable for screening in that general family slot so they probably would have gone no the same way that other stories at the time were were, because Web Planet wasn't was rejected for it was a Y astonishing From from a sixty cents a point of view, the web plan is a story that has no human characters other than the TARDIS crew. It's these alien creatures on this planet, and they probably thought for a general audience it isn't quite. It's a little bit alarming. And the same with Dalek Invasion <laughs> of Earth, because Dalek Invasion of Earth's got some sort of scenes of violence and dead bodies and yeah. everything. You can, can you can see their reasoning from a sixties viewpoint. If you put that sort of mindset on of something that's a very much more of a conservative viewpoint of how audiences reacted to television in the 1960s you can see their reasoning but what we don't Mm. know is why the crusade wasn't screened because we've got this two conflicting records our suspicion is that the annotation in the ledger is wrong and it should have been a why or that it was originally rated g and then someone had a rethink and gone no there's a little bit too much sword fighting and violence in this one it probably should be a why there's some very adult material with ella Keir, isn't there you know threats of rape and that's right and all that sort that's of right stuff. but then by the same token the, the time medal is screened here and that's got you know threats of rape in it too so yeah jumping in just quickly on a, a 
point you made. You said there were four regions. Did they bicycle around the same print? Yes, yes. From they, station ne- to station? No, they never screened on the same day. So you would have four regions were Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Dunedin, which were the four, the four main centres uh-huh. in New Zealand. And there was no particular order. Usually it was, say, Wellington or Christchurch that got them first. Christchurch was the very first region to screen Doctor Who. And as a side note, we were the very first country outside the UK to screen Doctor Who in the entire world. So yeah. New Zealand has that, that claim to fame. But if a story stays screened in Christchurch, it may then screen in Wellington a week later, Auckland, say, a couple of weeks after that, and Dunedin maybe a, a week after that. So the closest an episode would ever screen in New Zealand would be... F- in a, in a space of four weeks and yes yeah. it would literally be put on a train or a truck or something and and, and as you say bicycle there'll be one film print one film print would come into yeah. new zealand that film print would be physically edited if any cuts were needed they would actually physically snip that film they mm. would put probably put their own nzbc leader on the front of it and then mm. it would just be shunted around the country to each of the four stations screened as scheduled and then it would go into storage in New Zealand until such time as a decision was made about what to do with that film print. And that's what happened with all the 1960s film prints of of Doctor Who. So in terms of New Zealand, there's a large number of stories that never screened here. We never got, for instance, Keys of Marinus, Aztecs, Dalek Invasion of Earth, Web Planet, as I mentioned before. We never got Dalek Master Plan, never got Mission to the Unknown, Mm. never got Gunfighters whole swag of trout and we never got season six of trout at all wedding space was the last mm. story screened here prior to pertwee and some of those stories we just never purchased it's not that they were all rejected by the censor some of them just never never arrived mm. in new zealand they probably perhaps were not offered for sale or if they were offered they were just turned down for sale yeah there's big gaps mm. in the in the new zealand broadcast record mm. yeah so crusade was one of those Strange. ones that fell through the gap and and never screened here so it's ironic in a way that it turned up here I've been looking into trying to discover, well, seeing what um, the consensus of opinion is on where your prints came from in New Zealand. And um, even John Preddle doesn't seem particularly clear. Some, of, I'd assume that they would have come directly from the BBC, as they did for Australia, that you would have had nice new prints. But it seems he seems to think that a lot of them came via Singapore. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that, that ledger that I mentioned states where they went. It doesn't state where they came from. So we know, for instance, which episodes went from New Zealand to, say, Iran or to Denmark or to Singapore, which were the three main countries that we yep. we exported films to. But we don't necessarily know where they came from. Mm. You mentioned Iran. That's quite timely, isn't it? Because no less an authority than Mr. Vanessis has suggested that one... Mm two episodes at least might still be there we know from the um the program logs that i believe it's two episodes of marco polo the first two episodes of marco polo mm. were sent to iran why we didn't send the complete story i don't know is it simply that the ledger hasn't been filled in for those other episodes and we sent the complete story or was it that we only sent the first two episodes because that's all they wanted i don't know did they ever screen it as well that's the other question so um yes your episodes were sourced from a variety of different places, but some of them were sent on as well to other mm-hmm. countries. But the ones that weren't all faced the same fate, didn't they? Yeah. On on the program logs, there's a date against many of the episodes of the 1st of April 1970. And for a while we wondered what that was, and it turned out to be a stock take date. And simply what it was is that someone or a group of people had gone through the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation film stores and made a note of which film store had which film prints sitting on the shelves on that date so that they therefore had an up-to-date record of 
of, of what they were holding and you know so they knew because days before computers it was all done on pencil and paper so the annotation against that episode of the the, the lion and the other episodes of the crusade is hs 1470 which is harriet street which was one of the uh the new zealand broadcasting corporation's film stores in wellington and obviously that date of first of april 1970 so that's the last annotation for for that film print and what we know anecdotally is that subsequently to that a, a large number of those episodes that were in that stock take were sent to the dump they cleared out the film store and new zealand broadcasting corporation were building new archives new studios and didn't want to necessarily keep everything they had in the old film store so a lot of it was just relegated to to landfill to be sent to the dump so we're talking this is by no means just doctor who it's by no means just bbc material it's just film cans from all over the world that they happen to have brought into new zealand the screening on television they were just loaded onto trucks and, and sent to landfill cuts to 1999 and 29 years after it was dumped such a long time (laughs) landfill such a long time for it to be effectively (laughs) hidden from public view yeah what happened tell us what is that too broad is that too broad (laughs) question we probably need to break the story down (laughs) what happened but yeah it starts out as sort of word of mouth thing and here i have to give a lot of credit to my my good friend neil lambis who's the one who did all the detective work and he was talking to a friend of his called Cornelius Stone, who again never does really gets mentioned in the story. So really, a shout out to Cornelius here for uh-huh. his part to play as well. Cornelius was a friend of a film collector called Bruce Grenville, and yeah. Bruce had in his collection in his house a number of sixteen millimeter film prints that he would play for his friends, and he had like an amateur sort of cinema type organization you know you could hire the films he'd come along and play the films for you if you wanted so he was offering a sort of a film hire service this was actually online you could (laughs) this is the absurd thing in 1998 (laughs) on bruce's website which you could have viewed from uk or anywhere in the world he had the line listed on online no one ever noticed oh it's bonkers that isn't it it's mad yeah (laughs) anyway so getting back to the story Cornelius had seen this episode of Doctor Who and mentioned it to Neil when they were chatting about what Cornelius had seen because they were talking animated Planet of the Apes or whatever it was that Cornelius had also watched and they were raving about, oh, isn't it great to see these things on film? So Cornelius mentioned that there was this Hartnell episode he'd also seen at Bruce's and, and this obviously pricked Neil's ears up because Neil is one of these people who has spent a lot of time speculating about Doctor Who episodes hmm. still surviving anywhere in the world, maybe New Zealand and neil's got a background as a film projectionist anyway so he's got an actual interest in the in the subject so neil established from talking to cornelius that it was an episode of the crusade they got that far and the belief generally was that it might be the episode that existed on vhs nick cornelius thought it might have mm. been the same one so wheel of fortune episode three but he wasn't sure you know, so Neil's thinking, well, the other three episodes are missing. So, you know, got a one in four chance of it being the one that, uh, it, it, mm. you know, <laughs> it would be ironic, wouldn't it? If we went along and it was Wheel of Fortune, we go, oh, no. Because <laughs> it could have been. But, yeah, a bit like later happened with the space Well, bombers. exactly. So mm. Neil got in contact with John Preble, whom we've already talked about. 
and said to John, you know, hey, hey, it's a missing episode. And because myself and John had listened to Neil for many years talk about missing episodes in New Zealand and all these theories and everything, and I'm sure that at some point you'll have Neil on your podcast and Neil will tell you all his theories, so I don't need to go into them now. <laughs> but uh, there's a bit of a cry wolf situation there that, you know, Neil, <laughs> yeah, Neil's expecting John, John to drive from another city to come and come back to Auckland and go with him to see this film collector on the off chance that he might have a missing episode. So John turned him down and said, no, I'm, you know, I don't think I'm not, I'm not bothered. I'm not, I won't come along. So Neil then phoned me. And one of the reasons he did that was because John said, oh, Neil had already arranged for Bruce Granville when he set up this meeting. He said, would you mind if we videoed the episode? You know, if we set up a video camera and took a recording of it off the screen, Bruce goes, no, that's fine, you can do that. And so I had a video camera and, and John didn't. So John said, well, why don't you call Paul? Because he's got a video camera. And so Neil phones me and I go, oh, Neil, look, I haven't actually, you know, Neil's a good friend of mine. We've been friends for years. And, and I said, well, let's catch up anyway, because even if it turns out to be nothing, at least we'll have had a good catch up. And so, yeah, yeah. So we got together in town. We went out for a meal and, the, you know, there was certainly a sense of anticipation or you know this could be we could be on the verge of a major discovery so we're getting quite excited about it really we're sort of rocking each other okay this is gonna be great it's gonna be great we're gonna find something but the background mind's going no don't get too don't get too wound up because you know this guy might not have anything you know that that's missing or he might not have anything at all the, the, the chinese whispers might have got very confused so we went along to the um bruce's place and bruce welcomed us in and everything and very happy to see us there and we chatted and everything the problem was that bruce had just uh, maybe 10 minutes beforehand had sat down to watch a film on video <laughs> oh, <I read> this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a, a film called veronica voss which is forever stuck in my memory <laughs> 1984 black and white <laughs> film that just seemed to go on for an eternity imdb says it's under two hours but it felt like three to me <laughs> <laughs> so we basically had to very politely sit through this entire film and as we were doing so my feeling was that this is how you get wound up this is how hoaxes happen yeah you know you've been pranked basically you get to the you know you've been waiting there all evening oh we've got nothing you know yeah, yeah. you've got you, 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 a video of rick astley yeah you've been had yeah, exactly. you've been rolled you've been had you know someone jump out you've been pranked so that was my feeling of, you know, I, I was getting more and more despondent as we were watching. And I think Neil picked up on that because at some point he sort of turned to me and goes, no, no, it'll be all right. Stick with it, stick with it, you know. So very politely, because I didn't, didn't want to upset him or walk out on him or anything. We just, we suffered through this film. And then afterwards, <laughs> Bruce goes, it's getting quite late at night by this. So it's getting into, and I was saying, going, I, I, I half expecting Bruce to go, oh, it's too late now, we'll, we'll do it another time. But no, Bruce goes, no, let's put on the film. Let's just do it. So we put on the film. Another thing to consider, and this is something that's only just occurred to me, when we got there, it, it was probably still daylight, and therefore actually putting the projector on might have been too early in terms of actually being able to see the film. Uh, that might have been... Right. In Bruce's defence, that might have been part of his reasoning, although I don't remember right. him saying so at the time, is he might have been waiting for it to get dark so he could actually screen it. It's right. never occurred to me that I was telling you that right now. There you go, there's, there's, there's exclusive for you. So I, because this is Jan this is January, right? And early January, yeah. this is all, this is New Zealand, so that's a height of summer for us. So it yeah. would have been getting it would have been getting dark about maybe nine o'clock in the evening. There you go. Yeah. Gosh, that's a mystery solved, isn't it? That's why we were watching Veronica Voss on video. 
because the Veronica Voss wasn't on the projector; it was on the video. You know, it was just on the television. Well, there you go. Oh, you see, I've been maligning Bruce yeah. all these years. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny? All these years later, when you retell a story, how things occur to you. <laughs> <laughs> but he might—he could have put on Back to the Future or something. He? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. All those times I've, I've told the story and, and, and grumbled about him, and oh dear, totally unjustified. I feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, get back to the story. <laughs> so at the end of it, um, Bruce says, right, we'll set the projector up now, and uh, you can set your video camera up, and we'll play the episode for you. And at this point, Neil and I are still very unsure about, obviously, he's got a, a physical film print. That's pretty obvious, and it's probably mm. Doctor Who, because why would you go to this effort if it wasn't? But we still don't know, you know which episode it is and Bruce says oh, I think it's called The Lion and we're going well that's one of the missing ones so we're kind of getting a little bit anticipation at that point and because the agreement we had with Bruce was simply we'll come around we'll watch it we'll video it and my video camera mm. had an open mic so obviously it's picking up all the sound in the room we were like we'll just all very stay very quiet and watch it so that we get a good copy on the video right so we were restrained in our reactions, obviously. <laughs> so once Neil and I saw the, you know, saw the beginning of the episode, and we we it started out, and we could see that it was the beginning of the story, and sure enough, there was the title, "The Lion." We were kind of like silently shaking each other's hands, sort of giving a thumbs up and everything, without wanting to say anything. I mean, that sounds really absurd, I guess, in retrospect, because you know we should have been sort of cheering and whooping and carrying on. What we didn't know, because neither of us knew Bruce very well is whether that might have been our one and op only opportunity ever to see it. And so therefore yeah. that video copy that I was making Indeed. on my video camera might have been the only record we ever had. So yeah. there, there is a parallel reality where to this day that, that video camera recording is what everyone's seen and nothing more. If Bruce, for argument's sake, <laughs> never left it out of, his, out of his sight or sold it to a collector who never let anyone ever see it ever again. So... Yeah. yeah, so we were we were mindful at the time that, that we needed to get as good a video copy as we could of the... So we got to the end of the episode, and the awkward thing was that on one hand, and you know, you mentally play this through in your head. In fact, the thing is, when I was watching the episode, I was trying to enjoy it and, you know, take an experience, but like you would be, and the back of your mind is going, what do we do now? You know, that's yeah. what was on going through my head. What do we do now? We haven't really discussed this very well beforehand. How do we cope? What do we do? We don't know what the correct procedure is to actually do anything about this. Well, who is this guy? Mm. Is he going to let us borrow it? You know, all this is running through my head while we were watching this episode. So we get to the end of it, and I was really hoping that Neil wouldn't overplay his hand, and he probably was hoping the same thing about me because we hadn't <laughs> really discussed it very well beforehand. Because if we'd suddenly started saying to Bruce this is fantastic, you're sitting on a gold mine, Bruce might have gone, oh, okay, right, I'm putting it up for auction right now and no one's ever going to get to see it and I'm going to make millions of dollars out of it or whatever he thought. And that would have been the end of it. As it was, Bruce was kind of like, oh, uh, it doesn't really, I've watched it a number of times, I'm not really that interested in it. You know, it's not a complete story. I, and, and his, in Bruce's mind, he thought the BBC held it. He didn't realise it was a missing mm. episode. Um, he wasn't yeah. much of a Doctor Who fan himself, so he just wasn't clued up on the fact that the BBC were missing. You know, his in immediate reaction to us saying to him that the BBC were missing episodes and this was one of them was, you know, that's not right. The BBC hold all of Doctor Who 
you know you can go into a shop and you can buy them in VHS we'll go no this <laughs> ones that are missing but this is a non-fan perspective right also a lot of BBC staff thought exactly the same thing apparently well yeah, yeah we'll get to that later on shall we <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms did you tell Bruce there and then or did you go oh well that's quite interesting I suppose or how did you how did you react when the when the film finished well like I say we were trying to be a bit sort of diplomatic and, and circumspect about it because we didn't want to sort of hype Bruce up to the point where he, he, we, don't, we didn't want him to think that he had something so incredibly valuable that he would never let out of his sight because hmm my my um, objective in this was I want to actually borrow this film print from you. I want to take it away with me. I want to send it to the BBC. I want them to be able to take a copy of it. And then I, I, my, my presumption was then they'll give it back to you and you can do what you like. That's what I proposed to Bruce at the time. I said, look, this would mm. be the ideal situation if you let us borrow it and send it to the BBC for a period of time as a loan. Bruce seemed amenable to this, but he wanted time to think about it because obviously he didn't know us very well. We didn't know him very well. He didn't know if we didn't have any sort of credentials on us or anything, if you know what I mean. So we decided to leave it for a week, you know, let Bruce think about it. Neil and I went back to my place and we emailed Steve Roberts. I knew Steve probably through his forum, maybe. Mm. So he knew who I was. He, he knew, you know, we knew each other to email each other. So his reaction was very much immediately, great, this is great news type thing. And he yeah. emailed me a, a letter that I could give to Bruce that would, you know, state what they, what the BBC's intentions were in regard to the, the film so that Bruce had something to, um, you know, verify that we were legit. I think that happened. Yeah. I might be getting ahead of myself. That the first time I think I didn't have the letter when I went around to see Bruce, if I remember rightly, because I, I arranged. I, I rang up Bruce. Neil Neil lived, had to go home to to his own city, so I had to do all the work, the leg work after this point. So Neil had done all the detective work. Neil had invited me along. Everything in terms of finding the film, in terms of finding Bruce, arranging the film, you know, the the screening. Actually getting yeah. the contact with Bruce, doing all that legwork, inviting me along, that's all Neil. Neil deserves all yeah. the credit for that. That's Neil Neil is the one who found the film. I'm the one who returned it, if you want to break down the responsibilities yeah. there. Hmm. So this is where I come into play is I was responsible for negotiating its return once Neil had gone home to, to his home city of Whangarei. And and so I, I rang up Bruce a couple of days later and said I didn't leave a week because I thought this someone's gonna get Someone's going to hear. Someone's going to get, we're going to lose our opportunity. So I rang up Bruce and I said, look, you know, hello, remember me and all this. And uh, would you, thank you so much for letting us see the episode. How do you feel about loaning it to the BBC? Would you mind if I come around and pick it up? And he goes, oh yeah, come around in the evening. So I thought, this is easy. So I thought, right. Well, I drove around to, to Bruce's after work and go, right, hi, here I am. And Bruce meets me at the door and goes, no, I've changed my mind. Oh no! I've decided that you know I I don't I, you you just might take the film away and I might never see it again and I'll never know you know I never contact hear any contact from you and I've lost my film don't think so. Fair enough, Bruce. You know you don't know me very well and I could just be you know trying to steal your film. So I, I think at that point I went back to Steve and got an official letter from Steve emailed through that I could print out and send and give to Bruce. So I think that was yeah. the the point at which it. it, it uh, turned from you know yeah i got, got some some backing if you like because the second time I went back to bruce he, he he looked that over and said yeah that's fine and handed me the film fantastic but the thing that sticks in my mind to this day is walking away from bruce's flat with the film in my hand 
and it was a very long <laughs> steep driveway that I had to walk up and Bruce was standing at the door watching me I just kept thinking at the back of my mind any moment now he's going to go hold on no wait come back I've changed my mind <laughs> <laughs> I just thought this is just, you know, get to the car, get to the car, get in the car, drive away. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I was in constant contact with Steve and Steve said, look, the best way to get this film back to me securely is if it goes directly to Steve's address, not to the BBC. Because if it goes through their mail room, there's the risk that it might go to the wrong department, might get missing. Anyway arranged all that with Steve and I'd already posted Steve a copy of the VHS so that he could because yeah. at a point when we didn't know if we could borrow the film so so at least he had a copy and then Steve said look the most secure way is to use FedEx to get it from uh, New Zealand to the UK I go Steve you realize how much money this is because that's all right that's all right you will be reimbursed by the BBC because you know, they want to get this back. <laughs> I hear you laughing already you know this but anyway right. so <laughs> So I, I dutifully do all this, um, and out of my own pocket, own, own Visa card, send the film print via Express FedEx to the UK, and it's so fast that Steve receives it long before he gets the VHS copy, even though they've been posted earlier. And so that's all secure. He's got the film. The film's fine. You know, brilliant. Everything's good. So from that point, I can sort of breathe a sigh of relief. And this is probably where we should talk about where it came from, really. But... Um, Bruce acquired the film in 1998, so only about six months before before we found it in his possession. And Bruce had found it at a film fair in in, in New Zealand. He had bought it for a grand total of five dollars, which is next to nothing. And and it just basically the the reason why it was so cheap was because it wasn't a complete story. It was you know no no one realised it was a missing episode. None of these film collectors had any idea that there were missing episodes of Doctor Who and in the time after the discovery after we after we returned to the BBC and we were like going well, where did this come from we realized it was originally a New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation print there was you know mark markings on the the film can or the film itself which identified that there was no doubt about that and the research that we did after the film was returned to the BBC a good friend of ours from Wellington called Graham Howard did a lot of this footwork. He had discovered what had happened was that when the films, and we're talking lots of films here, not necessarily all Doctor Who, but films from this film store in Harriet Street that I told you before, had been sent to the dump, maybe multiple mm. trucks, maybe multiple dumpings, not necessarily all on the same day. A mm. film collector had got wind of this and had made arrangements with the guy who was doing the dumping that he would just, on, on the sly, would, would just help himself to you know rather than this guy putting them all in the dump he'd turn up with his van and he'd load a number of these film prints into the back of his van and i don't know maybe there was an exchange of money i don't know there's two the, the details are too long lost in the past but the reality was that quite a large number of film prints ended up in the film collector's possession which were meant to have gone to the dump and the paperwork was basically they've gone to the dump this was a fraction of the dumping so in other words, he wasn't yeah. allowed to take everything because, you know, the guy had to have been seen to have dumped a lot of the stuff in the landfill. If the landfill was, didn't have any film pans in it, questions might have been asked. He saved hundreds of prints, didn't he? But what, were they, was that out of thousands, do you think, maybe? We don't know quite how many there would have been. Like I say, there might have been multiple trucks worth. He took 321 films. Right. We know this because he 
produced a 17-page type list of all the films that he'd rescued from the dump. So we know what he rescued. There's like episodes of Man from Atlantis and uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and all sorts of things. It's totally random because he, he was just basically just probably at some haste and, you know, covertness, shall we say, just grabbing what he could find. And I don't know if he would have even been looking out for anything in particular. So it's a very much a random assortment of stuff. And unfortunately, you know, we can do the mind games, you know, <laughs> but there could have been lots and lots of Doctor Who episodes in that dump. There could have been, you know, the truck could have mm. been dumping lots and lots of film prints of Doctor Who. It just so happened that one of them was got picked up by this guy and, and taken, and that happened to be the lion. None of the other film prints on his listing were, were Doctor Who, only that one one print. It's a remarkable coincidence, not coincidence, it's a remarkable stroke of luck that if the New Zealand records don't exist for what happened to the Prince of the Dalek Invasion of Earth, the Rescue, the Romans, the Web Planet, and the Crusade, what a good stroke of luck it is that the one episode <laughs> that he has picked up is one of the 6, 8, 12, 18, plus 1 Crusade, 19 potential ones that he could have grabbed that, that we had. What a good stroke of luck. The same, the same annotation that appears on the program records for the Crusade, this, you know, 1970, mm. the last known, you know, stock take of it. Yeah. Also on that is um, Dark Invasion of Earth, the Rescue, the Romans, the Web Planet. They've all got that same annotation against it. So they call potentially a yeah. bull bean in that, that dumping. Also in that is five episodes of Marco Polo. <gasps> that also has the same annotation against it because the first two episodes are sent to a run the remaining five right. have got the same annotation that, that Crusade has so technically I did not know that technically right. they could have been in that dump same thing with right. Space Museum but again you're not that interested in that but you know what I'm saying it's there's a whole <laughs> the whole grouping of those episodes have all got that same notation against them yeah. but my point of all those stories that it's listed off to you so many of those we, we don't need you know what I mean mm. yes. so so you, let's yeah. let's imagine that all those episodes of Dalek Invasion of Earth Rescue Romans Web Planet all went into that dump at the same time we don't know that but let's say yeah. for argument's sake they did he could have easily yeah. just picked out one of those. You know, and the chance of him getting just the episode of Crusade, yeah. one that we didn't have, quite remarkable, really. And it's it's a stroke of fortune as well, I think. We know definitively, thanks to the detective work, the films that he picked up. So you guys aren't going to be, you know, wondering if there's more out there for the rest of your days because you know definitively that's the only one he got. Yep. You know, it, it's sad. Short of digging up this rubbish there. tip, there's nothing else that can be done, is there? Yeah, but can you imagine? <laughs> Not early, early 1970s <laughs> through to now, what the sort of state of anything would be. <laughs> I, don't, I, I very much doubt you'd even recognise it as a film can, let alone anything else. Even before Indiana Morris started talking about digging up rubbish tips, I, I remember fans <laughs> on forums saying, could we do this, could we do this? I'm sure somebody once said that it had a play, school playing field on top of it now, but I don't know if that's apocryphal. Right. John might have said it was a car park. Yes, uh, John John Preddle's <laughs> John Preddle's shown me aerial photographs of what he believes is the the landfill area. Uh, <laughs> Again, that's something maybe you can ask him about. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. What we what we understand is that a, a large number of these film cans, including the Lion, had been stored for a long time on a property, and basically. He, he hadn't been paying for the, you know, he'd been using someone else's property to store these films. 
and he hadn't mm. he'd agreed to to pay this this guy who owned the property you know for the storage space and tons and tons of boxes and crates of all sorts of junk that that was being and apparently it was being exposed to the weather and everything so it was all starting to deteriorate so again stroke of fortune the line didn't you know the rain didn't get in and all that sort of thing because all these film cans were just lying around in, in open weather so the guy a guy called dean fletcher got sick of all these you know having to store this stuff for his mate and um, invited a film collector called Larry Duggan along to his property and go well, do you want to just make me an offer for for what you'd like and so Larry bought around 40 of these films for $150 and one of those happened to be The Lion and then um, Larry sold it at a film collector's fair where, where Bruce bought it. So basically The Lion had been sitting in, in, in junk storage for, for, for a while. Fantastic. Yeah, so there's all this sort of good fortune steps all along the way where it might have got destroyed or lost or... or you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it survived all yeah. these steps. Yeah. And, and and like I say, none Fantastic. of these film collectors knew the importance of it. So talking about the aftermath then, we've we got as far as um, your film print closely followed by the VHS turning up on Steve Roberts's. Yeah, I mean, step. then it's down to Steve working his magic, shall we say. You know, the restoration team, as they were at the time, will put it through a wet gate process, I believe, to try and get as many of the scratches out. I mean, you've seen the condition of the mm. thing on on DVD mm. you know it's not the best quality but they did the best they could and I would hope now that time's moved on and software's improved that when it does come out on Blu-ray that a lot of those scratches may be able to be cleaned out I'm not sure I would hope mm. that it'll look, look a lot more spruced up but obviously they don't have the film print anymore they've got the digital copy they made at the time because it was returned to Bruce indeed and nowadays, well, not that they've done them on Blu-ray yet, but they, they certainly have a practice of scanning things in HD now, don't they? Because I gather Mr. Crocker has said that even if there's no more resolution in the picture, you get more resolution in the damage, and that makes it easier to get the damage itself out. <laughs> yes, Bruce, when Bruce got the film back from Steve, this is about a month later, I think, I'd thought nothing of it. I kind of like, you know, the film had gone back to the, the BBC, to, to Steve, and Steve had done all his work on it. And I was going, this is all good, this is all good. And then Bruce contacted me a few weeks later and go, what's happened to my film? And so I got in touch with Steve and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we should return that, shouldn't we? So it's kind of like, so Steve FedExes it back to me and I return it to to Bruce. Then Bruce goes on to do it, the, the first and only public screening of the film at a sci-fi convention in Auckland. <laughs> it was very elaborately staged. Bruce was like, I want security guards. <laughs> you know, when I walk in, when I, he, wants to be, he wanted to be driven to the convention by security guards and he wanted to be walked in by, flanked by these security guards and he was going to put it on his projector and everything. So the, see, the convention were like rolling their eyes at this and going, oh, this is just ridiculous. So they, they, what they did was they, they very cannily got a, a, a few of their friends who, you know, the organizers' friends who, who happened to be quite solidly built characters to, to put on dark suits and sunglasses. And, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Bruce was probably, to be fair, Bruce was probably in on this, but it, he looked the part. You know what I mean? He wanted yeah. the showmanship of it. He, he wanted the theatrics of it. And Bruce's motivation yeah. behind doing all this was that Bruce wanted to auction off the film. Bruce believed by mm. this point that he was going to make a hell of a lot of money out of it. He was talking at one point about buying a house out of the proceeds of the, selling the film. <laughs> yeah, a million he dollars. He said he believed this. And nothing I could say to him would, would, would do any different. Uh, when it went public, and I, I was interviewed by um, one of our newspapers, 
the very pushy reporter was like, how much is it worth? How much is it worth? And I just plug a figure out of thin air. I said, oh, it might be a thousand pounds, maybe. I don't know. And so, of course, this went yeah. into print. Doctor Who print worth a thousand dollars. You know, it's kind of like, um, well, I just speculated there. But Bruce was like on to me going, it's worth far more than that. You've, you know, you've really, really undervalued it. It's, it's ridiculous. It's one of a kind. It's, it's going to go for millions of pounds and I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money out of it. Part of the problem was he was wrapped up by the lottery show in the UK because they did a special episode, which you might have seen of, mm, they have Fraser right. Hines on it and they were talking about good luck stories. And, and I think this is a segment they did every week on their lottery show. And they got Bruce on the show a segment they filmed in New Zealand. He didn't travel over to the UK for it. But he's on the show talking about his amazing discovery and everything. And I think that the lottery show, because obviously they're associated with like, you know, a million pound draws and everything. I think they just got cemented in Bruce's mind what amazingly <laughs> good fortune he had by this owning this film print. So they probably racked him up to a certain extent in terms of making him think that he was sitting on this golden lottery ticket. And so he engaged an auction. He didn't go through eBay or anything. He engaged an auction house here in New Zealand to put it up for international auction at enormous marketing expense. And there were very few bids and it didn't reach reserve and it didn't sell. And then they tried again later, again at more additional marketing expense. And it did sell the second time but unfortunately it didn't even recoup the costs that Bruce had outlaid <laughs> in terms of, you know, the you know, the cut from the the, the auction house including mm, the advertising mm. they'd done into it. Although Bruce was not required to actually pay the difference, he certainly didn't make a cent out of it, which is kind of a bit unfortunate. So yeah. from from thinking yeah, so. he had something that was gonna buy him a house to something that made him absolutely nothing at all is a bit a bit tragic really. <laughs> I did say because, you know, obviously this is as much Neil's story as mine that Neil really ought to be represented on this this episode. What I asked Neil to do was to, to write me a couple of paragraphs that I could read out for you. That This is Neil's perspective 21 years later on, on Finding the Lion. So if I, can, if I can read this for you. Please do, yeah. 21 years later, it still seems quite dreamlike to remember that night. The meal we had beforehand, the thought that it could have been a hoax played on us. The agonizing wait as Bruce and his friend watch Veronica Voss. And then the unbelievable <laughs> image of the opening titles on a big projector screen. Then the TARDIS materializing in the clearing and the look on your face as we shook hands in silence so as not to ruin what could have been the only recording you were making. <laughs> wow. But the best bit for me after all this time is still that letter Alvin Rakoff wrote saying we had given him a little bit of his late wife Jacqueline Hill back for just 20 minutes. I still choke up about oh, what he wow. wrote as it means the most to me. And for me, that's what matters most about finding any missing episode and getting it back. It restores the art, the work of people that tried to create something from virtually nothing, memories for those left behind, and maybe for those of us watching it for the very first time, or the twentieth time. The fact that despite the wobbly sets, the black and white and the low budget effects, it's you and me, and all of us, with the Doctor and the TARDIS having an adventure. And once upon a time, 21 years ago, we saved the Doctor. Brilliant, Neil. Brilliant. Here, here. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well yeah. done. I hadn't heard about that Alvin Rakoff letter. That's amazing. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. Because people often talk about, you know, in, when fantasizing about episodes coming back, saying it would be nice for so-and-so to see it, and, and so on and so forth. But that that's a really tangible piece of 
years later, um, Fraser Hines came to New Zealand, and this was only about five years ago, I guess. Neil and I met him, and we, we, we explained who we were, and his eyes lit up and go, oh, you're the guys behind the lottery show thing I did. So yeah, for, it, 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 he, uh. it really meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to Neil. Neil, a huge fan of Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines. His, that's his era of Doctor Who, is the Troughton era. So for, yeah. to, to actually have Fraser recognise who Neil was really just blew Neil's mind. You know, it's kind of like, this is just dream come true. <laughs> but you, you can tell from Neil's words there just how, even all this time later, it means so much to him. You know, it's just, yeah. it's the most important thing Thank Neil's ever probably ever done in his entire life, probably. You know what I mean? It's, it's just so important to him. And I'm sure, I yeah. really do hope you get the chance to talk to him because he's got so many interesting stories to yeah, tell. Yeah, well, hopefully. Neil, if you're listening, you'd be very welcome to come on, perhaps to tell us about the Macro Terror. So going back to the, the proposed Bruce auctioning off the print and um, having aspirations of seven figures but achieving three figures, did he get a warning from the BBC or, or something about about his ability you, to sell? You're quite right. There's a whole issue around this. And in retrospect, looking back all this time later, I think the problem is that we were a test case in the sense that mm. prior to that time, you would have seen many articles in, in Doctor Who magazine. You'd have seen um, Doctor Who books. Mm. You'd, you'd have seen even like the, the documentary on the Weiss Warriors VHS all talking about Doctor Who missing episodes and all saying, if you ever find anything, the BBC would love to hear from you. <laughs> that whole sort of ethos, if you f think you've got a missing episode, please get in touch, we'd love to get them back. That was the message that was put out there. And yeah. so that mm. was the general impression in fandom. If we found something, it should be returned to the BBC because they'd love to, to, to have the episodes back and make the series that more complete. That's always been the understanding and that's probably quite sincerely what everyone meant. But I think that prior, if I might get this right, prior to the line, I think that most, if not all, of the film prints that have been discovered came from television companies. Would I be right in thinking that? Certainly the, the find before that was Tomb of the Sidemen, which had come from Hong Kong, from the television station. I think there were a handful mm. that had come via private hands, yeah. But I think mm. they'd always been returned to the BBC via the sort of fans who had BBC contacts sure. who could sure. smooth over that sort of issue. Yeah. So this might have been the first time for at least for quite a while, yes. certainly maybe... Something in, coming out of the blue. Yeah, certainly in the last decade, prior to that time maybe, that an episode had turned up in private hands and therefore had to be negotiated in terms of getting it back to the BBC and all the ramifications around that. So Bruce being his own publicist, if you like, uh, wanting to create a big <laughs> news story about it, was putting out press releases to all the major news organisations and getting a lot of newspaper coverage and media coverage. And as part of that, Bruce was saying in his press releases and everything that his intention was to auction off the film, which raised alarm bells at the BBC press office because, of course, from their point of view, he doesn't own the film. He can't sell off an episode of Doctor Who. He doesn't own it. Yeah. That was the official line. And so Steve was instructed to write to Bruce directly saying look you don't own the rights to this film you can't auction it you don't you don't have I don't remember the exact wording of the letter but certainly it was a, a warning letter basically saying please cease and desist with these 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 intention to make a lot of money out of this film print and I guess too there's also the thing that 
if that gets a lot of publicity than any other, it sets a precedent that any other film print had come to light, mm. there would also be the expectation that this would also be a source of major revenue. So it would make the situation so much more difficult for the BBC to ever get anything else back. Yeah. So I could see, kind of see their reasoning, but it wasn't particularly, and it's not, can I just hasten to say, it's no criticism of Steve. He was, as a BBC employee, being told to communicate this information. So it's not Steve's words at all. Days later, the BBC had a change of heart and gone, no, hold on, this is going to backfire on us. We need to let Bruce know that while he doesn't own the copyright in the episode, he does indeed own the physical film print. That's his. Mm. So he can auction that. What about that change of heart? Was it a result of any discussions with any, anybody It might have been Steve's input. I don't know. I don't know. But there was certainly... Right. Steve very urgently got in contact with me because by this time his letter was in the post to, to Bruce, the first letter, the warning letter. And so he said, look, can you just get in touch with, let Bruce know that, you know, disregard the first letter, there's a second one coming. <laughs> so Bruce was warned about this. Mm. Bruce knew to expect two letters. One letter saying, don't do anything, you're a naughty boy sort of thing. And the second letter saying, you know, you're perfectly fine. Here are, here are the legal things. You can auction your film, but you don't own the copyright. But Bruce obviously saw, smelt a news story here and so went to the papers and when they got the first letter. And the, rest, the Bruce, you know, I'm being... I'm being sued by the BBC they're going to take me to court but I'm going to get lawyers involved and we're going to fight it all the way because totally unjust yeah. <laughs> in the full knowledge yeah. obviously that the situation had been resolved <laughs> but this is Bruce wanting to yeah. drum up publicity for his auctions so. my wider point is that the BBC were not set up they were not prepared they were not geared up they didn't have a process a policy if you like and we, of course we're not just talking about Doctor Who here because there are other programs many other programs that they would like to have returned and one of the it was an interesting perspective. I got a phone call one day. This is maybe a couple of years after Return of the Lion and all the publicity had died down and everything. I got a phone call from a gentleman who was visiting New Zealand called Charles Garland. Now, this guy um, was a producer. I know the name. Right. Where do you know the name from? Didn't he re-edit um, Dad's Army for afternoon repeats on BBC One? Um, you're quite right. Um, so Charles Garland, um, he was on holiday in New Zealand, and because obviously he knew of my name, he looked me up in the phone book, and having a sufficiently unusual name, he was able to track me down and give me a call. So he was just saying, you know, hello, and congratulating me on my part in returning the episode and everything, and it was very nice to hear from him and everything, and he was making the point that there were still episodes of Dad's Army that we were still looking for, so just like Doctor Who, that Dad's Army mm. was incomplete yeah. and everything. You know, we were chatting away, and lovely guy and everything, had a nice conversation on the phone. And he said to me something which which sticks in my mind to this day. He said, you are ever so fortunate that you got the episode back to the BBC. And I thought, this is an odd comment to make. So I questioned him. He said, you're going to be horrified to hear this, but the BBC receptionists, when they take calls from the public, they have a list of people they can forward them to. And these are all producers and production officers for current programs being made. There is nowhere to forward a call to if someone rings up and says, I think I've got a missing episode. So they basically say, they get turned away. They get, you know, told, sorry, we're mm -hmm. not interested. It's not one of our current programs. And yeah. Charles Garland's perspective was someone might have had those missing episodes of Dad's Army that he was so desperately looking for and might have been turned away at the switchboard. And he had anecdotal evidence from people who worked on the switchboard, oh, sorry, on the reception desk, that this was indeed the case for, not people necessarily about Dad's Army, but people who thought they had missing episodes of any BBC programme ringing up, and, we do, sorry, we don't have a number to forward you to, so we can't help you, sorry. Flabbergasted. Yeah. 
he was so upset about this and so his point to me was fantastic that you managed to get through the switchboard and i pointed the point well no we didn't we went through steve roberts and he was going fantastic fantastic that you found someone who cared and i think that's all credit to the the Mm. restoration team and steve roberts in particular that we had that opportunity because if neil and i had gone to the bbc we might have you know generally if we'd gone rang the main number we might have had a hard time finding anyone so that's just one example of well two examples because there's the whole legal issue and also the switchboard issue of the bbc just not being set up for this sort of thing one hopes that it's improved to this day but you know i I have this terrible feeling that if you did ring the bbc now on the general line whether anyone would actually know what to do with a call like that if that's still the case the the other issue which you're probably well aware of is that the advantage with sending the film to steve rather than to the bbc mailroom was that it was in safe hands that you know steve wasn't going to let it out of its sight and it stayed with him and no one was going to walk off of it but the disadvantage of that is that i wasn't sending it back through official bbc channels so there was no paperwork trail to show that I'd made that delivery, right? And so <laughs> right. the the process of me actually being able to claim back my expenses in terms of FedExing this film from one side of the world to the other was not straightforward. Ah. Steve put me in touch with the accounts department at the BBC for me to submit my oh expense Lord. claim. <laughs> and it just yeah. sat there for months. We're talking after the thing's already out on VHS before I got any action <laughs> So, you know, the film's already making they're already, they're already making money on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it literally got to the point where I was sort of going, well, you know, I'm happy the film's back and everything. I'm not I'm not begrudging that, but it's kinda of like could you could you at least I should say I didn't get paid a cent for the for the lion, you know, I didn't make any money. I never intended to. I just my thing was just get the film back, you know, everyone can enjoy it. Because I was thinking, well, you know, that, that's all that matters to me as a fan. I'm not, I'm not here to make any money. But at the same time, you're not a charity. There's one sure way to find out if if they've improved their systems anyway, Paul, and that's for you to turn up the Knight of Jaffa. <laughs> <laughs> but the way, the way, the way I swung it in the end was to fax them a copy of my visa statement that showed the interest rate on it. <laughs> and to basically put a covering note on it going it's been six months <laughs> what what you've done is you know change the landscape of that that second series in, in a in a percentage minor mm. way but but it's uh it's an experience altering thing that you've done for fans of the show oh, and, and absolutely. I hope absolutely. all these I hope all these 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 negatives don't take away from the, the overwhelming positive no. that is there's a, there's a very fine episode mm. of Doctor Who that sits in the archive but, thanks to thanks to Neil the, and yourself the, the point, yeah and the Bruce. point I really wanted to make there is not so much that I have all these gripes although it does sound a bit like that because I'm not bitter about it at all it's it's simply that the amazement that what should have been a fairly straightforward process and should have been something that in our expectation going into it that the BBC would have been set up to embrace us with open arms and to say hey fantastic and as for your as for your own recognition that I wouldn't be at all surprised if we get season two on um, on blu-ray within the next few years and I'm sure I'm sure your name will be all over it this time 
I think the right people will be <laughs> writing the sleeve notes and producing documentaries. Wouldn't it be lovely if and I got to do the production infor- information titles, wouldn't it? But who knows? <laughs> I get told what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to take. I'm going to take that as a hint, even though. No, no, good lord, it's certainly not. No, no, I'm not winking or anything. Good lord, I'm not getting trouble. No, I can assure you, Paul is not winking. Animation aside, there's also, you know, always the, the vague possibility that we may yet recover the other two episodes. As we've said on the, the last two editions, the best hope for this story seems to be Ethiopia. There doesn't seem to be any other glaring opportunities, Tim. No, indeed not. And, um, yeah, Ethiopia again. Yeah, if they've got Marco, they've got Rain and Crusade. If they haven't, <laughs> well, never mind. And we'll never know in either case. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a long time later, though, isn't it? It just decreases the possibility, I would have thought. Yeah, a lot can happen in, the, in those... It uh, does. 40, 50, 50, nearly 50 years. I, I thought it was quite extraordinary when Web Affair and uh, Enemy of the World were returned. Again, they, they sat in that film store untouched for all those years. Again, the chances mm. of anything happening to them in all that time, and they, they, they managed to survive that long. I thought it was so remarkable. It was so obvious on the Enemy of the World Special Edition where we saw some of the photographs of that storeroom was that it was an absolute time capsule. Yes. That room looked like it had been barred up for the majority of mm. that time and no one had gone in. And yeah. you have to wonder what the chances of yeah, that, sure. those circumstances repeating yeah. themselves are. But you never know. I mean, Paul, you've had a hand in returning a, a film that was one out of 371 that just happened to have been fished yes. out of a... a a dump and then <laughs> and then rescued as part of a larger collection furthermore and then found its way to a person who who knew the right yeah. person i mean these things and, and just happen, happened but. out of what was probably a large if there was other doctor episodes in there almost all of the other ones in that batch were probably surviving <laughs> ones yeah yeah <laughs> there, there's there's a there's a, there's a, there's a I, mean, I talk about parallel worlds there's a version where we found episode two of dark of um dark invasion of earth you know and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yay we found a film print oh dear we <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm sure i can still come on to talk to you about it but no one will be that interested <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope you'll come on and talk about a, a story in a, another capacity later I'd, on, perhaps, I'd love if to. you'd be game. It's been an absolute pleasure talking yeah. to you, Bo. It's not contingent on you actually discovering it. We, we'll have it back <laughs> just yeah, for the pleasure I, I, of your I think company. you're waiting for me to find something else so I can come on and talk to you about it, right? <laughs> Quite right. Pull your finger out. <laughs> thank you for negotiating this 11-hour time difference. I think it's been well it's worth it. It's quite all right. Thank you. <laughs> And that concludes our review of The Crusade. Do check out the bonus episode, which will be issued very shortly, to hear more of the interview with Paul. And please join us next time when we'll be discussing The Time Meddler with another special guest. Lastly, I'm on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR. Paul's at Mr. Paul Morris. And we'd be delighted if you get in touch. Goodbye. Goodbye.